Hi, you've found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming video, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. Today's podcast features an interview with artist Rackstraw Downs by author Philip Lopate, part of the Bomb Live Artists and Curators series that took place at the New Museum in New York City in the fall of 2002. Thank you. I'm going to try to introduce Rackstraw very briefly while I look at his pictures. Um, I, I've known Rackstraw Downs for about 20 years. We can no longer remember how we met. Um, but uh, I've always uh, been very impressed with his paintings and love them, in fact. Uh, and Rackstraw also is a, is a terrific writer. And I think of him as actually the most uh, articulate, well-read, uh, and really the smartest painter I know. Um, it doesn't mean the best painter, it just means the smartest painter. Um, and um, so I would like to, um, to begin to talk to you, Rackstra, so you're going to have to sit next to me. Um, that will be a pleasure. All right. Um, so we're looking at uh, some of Rackstra's pictures. And um, how many more do you think there are, as a matter of fact? No, we're almost finished. <laughs> almost finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're let's observe finished. them in silence then. <laughs> yeah, I think there's three more slides, four more slides. I realize that uh, although I've known you for something like 20 years, uh, there are some things I don't know about you, and so I'm going to find them out in front of this audience because I never had the nerve to ask you. Um, <laughs> but uh, what was your child like, childhood like? Uh, <laughs> you've never talked to me about your childhood, Rackstra. Thoroughly screwed up. <laughs> in what way? Um, I came from a very theatrical family indeed, and both my uh, parents were on the stage, and they met on the stage, and I have a fierce determination to get on with my work and not let anyone interfere with it, because when my father proposed to my mother, she said, you may marry the stage or you may marry me, and he foolishly made the bargain of quitting the stage, and they had a lousy marriage in consequence. <laughs> And um, the theatricality of the household had a lot, I think, to do with my own interest in art now. I mean, I like to paint and paint exactly what I see. And I will stand out there for weeks on end until I think I've got exactly what I see. I don't want any exaggeration. I don't want any theatricals in my painting at all. Um, but you did say in one of your pieces that there's a constant struggle between uh, sober accuracy and theatricality. So <laughs> you obviously um, do have a theatrical side, and, to, and, and, and many of these paintings have a sense of a, of, um, of a scene, you know. Um, uh, so you're still struggling with that. Huh? Well, I can't get rid of my genes, unfortunately. <laughs> did, you so draw, <laughs> did you draw when you were a kid? Yes, I did. And very badly, in very inhibited way, I still have some drawings I made in high school, but I was precocious in my tastes, and I have a catalog of, from the 
Academy, the, the London uh, National, uh, not the National, yeah, the, the National Academy of a Leonardo da Vinci drawing show, and I bought that catalog with my own money when I was eight years old. I thought that was quite good to find that. Really? I when still have eight. it in my book collection. <laughs> but you, when, when you were a kid, you did not have uh, the ambition to be an artist? I did, and I was discouraged. Yes, I was told that uh, I had literary talent and no visual talent and that I should give up the idea of being an... I didn't so much want to be an artist. You know, the British are very good at applied art, I think. They've gotten much better at fine art in recent years. But when I was coming up in the late 40s and so on, as a kid in the uh, 50s, we were really very good at typography and uh, graphic, graphic design, design yeah. and illustration. I mean, I think of Hockney as being a great illustrator, for example. And I, that's, I wanted to go into uh, typography. I was actually a very good calligrapher hmm. and felt that typography would be a sensible field for me to get into. And, uh, but you, you said that your first uh, education was, was in literary criticism. Uh, that's, that was, um at the university at Cambridge, I read English literature. I did, and everybody in England writes criticism. I think everybody writes in England. If you look at the letter column, correspondence columns of a magazine, they're extremely literate, the letters. And it's considered quite out of the question for anyone to say, oh, you know, I get so nervous when I have to write anything. I mean, that's not, you just, you don't acknowledge that in England. You just write it, and you're supposed to be good at it. And most are. Many British painters, this was a great fear for me, I think that many very good British painters are better writers than they are painters, oh. actually. Uh, yeah, and that was something that bothered me a great deal, and I didn't want to be that. I did not want to settle for that. Well, how, how, did, the, uh, how did the ambition come on you to to switch to art, um, and, and at what point did you uh, uh, migrate from England to here? Well, that, those two questions are connected. I was a, a jazz fan when I was a teenager. I played the double bass, and um, I, came, I won an exchange scholarship to come to this country, and I had an extraordinary, to go to school, and I had an extraordinary painting teacher who'd studied with Albers. And in England, you know, I would sit there drawing from the figure, and the teacher would come round and say, oh, yes, well, that uh, arm is rather sensitively drawn, I must say. And uh, this guy at the school in, in, in Connecticut would come in in the morning, and there were only two of us that took the course. And he'd say, hey, friends, okay, Bill, what are we going to do today? We're going to make a new tune, like a Bach, something like Bach. We're going to do it visually. How are we going to do this? And you were all, we were terribly excited by this. We thought the world was waiting out there for our efforts, you know. You, you, <laughs> you fell for that American con job, huh? I <laughs> so, and, and, and how old were you when, you when you came over here? I was 17. But seven. this guy was the real thing. He got exhibitions of Bradley Walker Tomlin on the corridors of the high school. I and mean, that is a remarkable thing to have at that point. You know, it was a remarkable and I've been in touch with him recently. I lost touch with him for about 40 years. And just recently, uh, actually, he called me on Saturday when I was in Virginia. And I hope we'll have a meeting after all these years, because he, he made it possible. He tipped the balance for me and made me think, as soon as I finish that literary degree in England, I will come back and go to school where he went to school, at Yale. Mm. Of course, Albers then was gone. Uh, so there was no Albers. But. So who was there? Well, for me, there was uh, Alex Katz, Neil Welliver, and Al Held. Those were wow. the three people that really uh, worked, for, helped me enormously. And they were very important, uh, had a very important affect on me. 
My, the first slide that you saw up there was one of my paintings made in art school in 1964, very much uh, uh, based on uh, Al Held's imagery at that time and his method. So you, uh, you began in a, in a much more, uh, in, as an abstractionist. Absolutely, absolutely. I was only interested in abstract art. When I was there at that school in Connecticut with that teacher, I looked at Mondrian. You know, I got to Mondrian via his interest in Bradley Walker Tolman and his friendship with Tolman. That took me to Mondrian's Boogie Woogie paintings and so on, and I became passionate and avid reader of Mondrian and everything else. And that whole aesthetic was very important to me, and I thought I'd go back and study with uh, an Alba's aesthetic, and it was a completely different kind of school when I got there. Uh. And I'm glad it was, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I went with great pleasure to see the Annie Alba's show at the Jewish Museum a couple of summers ago, and it made me weep almost to see those extraordinary, you know, there's an extraordinary thing. They had an idea, those people, that you do one little thing, and you keep on doing it, and it creates a whole configuration that comes out of this obsessive, uh, single-minded act, this tiny act of drawing a diagonal line over and over again, whatever it is. And you get these amazing uh, structures that she made. And in some ways, I think I like her stuff better than Joseph's because Joseph changes color, but when she changes color, she changes substance. She changes material, material too, and yeah. it's very rich stuff. I think her stuff is fabulous. But I think of Al Held as kind of a, lo a looser and, and wetter, perhaps. Well, he was, but he tightened it down in the end. You uh -huh. know, you start out very loose, and you splash around, and you go through metamorphoses of the image, but in the end, you kind of nail it down very hard. So, so this was in, uh, what, what, what years were this? Um, 61 to 64. 60s. Yeah, 61 to 64. The and two art handlers in that first slide, by the way, lifting that, Abstract painting onto the wall were Richard Serra and Chuck Close. They oh. were classmates of mine. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what was your take on uh, uh, figurative painting then or realist painting? Um? Well, when I first, my first year at Yale, there was a show in the Yale Art Gallery uh, called From the New York Galleries, selections from the New York Galleries. There was a Fairfield Porter in there and an Alex Katz, and I thought they were utterly dreadful. They were the the total miss-outs of the show. I couldn't think how poor they were. And it was a gradual process, you know, through listening to other people. They, other students in the, in the school were extremely interested in those paintings. Katz had been there as a teacher, and they knew how to look at those paintings, and I had to learn that. And I did gradually learn that and became extremely interested in it. And I, later, yeah, go ahead, I remember Tom. that period because I was going around with my brother to the galleries, and the late 50s, early 60s, and it was a very polarized time, I think, and uh, uh, we were, we were, uh, a non-objectivist painting was like a religion, you know, and we, we belonged to that religion, we, we worshiped at that church, and, um, and I remember um, the feeling of, uh, of contempt, I think would be the word, for painters like uh, Raphael Sawyer, for instance, painters who were realists, uh, we felt they had missed the boat, and, and in jazz terms, if you, if you didn't listen to Bop, you were what was called a moldy fig, you know. So, so the a lot of the uh, realists we thought were the uh, painting equivalent of of moldy figs, you know. But this other group of uh, Fairfield Porter and Alex Katz and uh, Jane Freilich, uh, uh, it, it seemed to me that they were um, figurative painters or realist painters who who didn't want to set up in opposition to uh, non-objective art, but uh, they were not 
they were not opposed to this direction, but they wanted a, a space or a room for themselves. Um, so in a way, there were like there were like two realist camps. There was a realist camp, uh, you know, who met uh, people like uh, like Sawyer or John Coke, for instance, uh, and who who basically were were uh, pointing their fists at the museums and saying, "Let us in," you know. Uh, and then there was this other group that. Um, that felt rather sympathetic, certainly to de Kooning, um, but uh, wanted to, wanted to explore figura figurative art. Um, is that is that uh, fair to say? Um, yes, I think so. I, I think there were two very different schools there, schools of thought there. I do, and uh, Porter and Cat. I mean, Cats. I remember Cats looking at a geometrical painting I had on my easel, and said, "Oh, that's very interesting. It looks like an early Winslow Homer." There was no barrier there between figurative and abstraction at all. And he meant that it had a sweet feeling to it, you know, like those Homer crack the whip or whatever it's called, those little boys in the field, you know. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. It had a sweet feeling. It was gray and yellow and white, and it was a sweet abstract painting. And he, you know, there was no division at all there. And, and Fairfield's house was full of beautiful de Koonings, actually. Well, how did people like, like Porter and, 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 uh, and Katz signal the the art world and the art critics that that they were good guys who appreciated non-objective art. Well, that came very slowly indeed. I remember meeting a guy called, or talking to a guy called Jack Burnham, who uh, used to re run the uh, school, Nova Scotia School of Design, that very, uh, very hot school for a while in the 60s and 70s. And, I'd, and I mentioned Katz's name, and he said, oh, he's just a Sunday painter. And there was no, there was, it was a total washout. That, that wasn't counted. That simply did not count. I remember Janet Fish telling me that uh, somebody in her building came into her loft, you know, who was a geometrical painter, and refused to acknowledge there was anything on the wall. They're just, you know, they're willing to be sociable, but could not, would not see the stuff at all. That was interesting, I think. But you see, to me, I didn't see any going back with Porter and Katz at all. I think they inflected abstract painting and gave it a new kind of challenge by wanting to pit it up against observation. And, and the results were unprecedented. And I think that the effect of abstract art, of breaking down the training, my training was entirely in a, as an abstract painter, entirely. The fact that it was broken down so much, that system of training meant that when I went into it, it was all in discovery. I put down a little patch of yellow paint, uh, you know, in the middle of a green thing and looked like a patch of sunlight on a green field. I was absolutely shocked that I was able to do that. It was a discovery. You to were me. Re rediscovering or discovering. Exactly. You, you know, Baudelaire says it's important to have a little naivete, and I agree with him. <laughs> but speaking of naivete, I mean, uh, um, it, it seems to me that, that, that when you look at uh, some of the artists we've spoken about, like, uh, like uh, Freilicher or Porter or Katz, um, uh, sometimes there's a kind of awkwardness that seems almost intentional in their drawing. And, um, or, I think a word you once used was ingenuous. There's something ingenuous about it. And to me, that, that awkwardness or ingenuousness is a way of signaling um, modernity, if you will. Um, or, or that this is not a relapse, so to speak. Um, so, uh, so there's this cultivation of a certain kind of uh, naivete or ingenuousness uh, or, or awkwardness, as I'm saying. Um, and something that I think about in your work is that uh, 
why you why you always respected that you didn't go in that direction when i look at your paintings i don't see this awkwardness i don't see this ingenuousness so um do you want to say something about this yes i think you're wrong about border and cats and their uh um naivete cultivating a kind of naivete i think that um the cats is one of the deftest painters we've got oh yeah i don't you mean know. in any in any sense non-professional um but for instance when uh his, his application of more or less flat color in areas is, uh, uh, seems more like an abstracting device than what you're doing. Um, you know, Katz, well, I heard Katz once say to somebody, uh, see how little will hold the form, which is a beautiful phrase, and it explains, I think, a lot of the flatness in his painting, that he'll try to get the whole face with one flush of color and hit it here and here, and you've got the whole face. And that kind of economy uh, is an incredibly sophisticated art form. I think in Porter's case, too, that Porter was very interested in something that I would call inscape, like Hop Gerald Manley Hopkins uses, the internal character of a form. And so he would actually deliberately make an elbow stick out because he felt that an elbow was pointed. And so, you know, that, that had, a, had a strange awkwardness to it that was quite deliberate. He writes about that in one of his favorite painters, Nicholas Vasiliev, how Vasiliev did this to the figure and how it contributes to the humor of the figure or, or whatever Vasiliev is trying to do, you know, whatever kind of mood he's trying to create. Uh, so I, I, I don't, don't know if you so saw this, uh, this article by Sanford Schwartz uh, that was a review of the Fairfield Porter Show in the New York Review of Books, but he, he, was, he was put off by what he felt was this awkwardness in Fairfield Porter's work. Yes. Uh, so there still is this, um, this, this problem of, uh, you know, why or what is that? You know? I think that Sandy is a fabulous writer and his piece on Catlin right now is absolutely brilliant. But I think he's got that wrong. <laughs> but I still want to. I still want to. Um, I don't want to say nab you, but I want to. Uh, I want to push you a little bit more because I feel that in some ways, um, a lot of your, um, a lot of your rationale for your approach as a figurative artist, realist artist. I'm using these as shorthands. Is. Um, you, you, you've, been, you've written a lot very well about American primitives like John Cain, for instance, and you've expressed an interest in primitives, but your work is not primitive. No, it can't be. How can it be? I have three degrees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they introduce these primitive painters, you know, all the writers on, on naive painting always say, I walked down the street in a little village in Florida and I found this barber and he had these paintings in the back. The, you go down the street to that barber's shop to prove that he didn't have a degree, to prove that he didn't know what he was doing. Right. It is the guarantee that this guy is a real natural. He ain't, he ain't a trained singer. He just has a pure natural gift. And that is what that writing is about, I think. So I, 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 am, a, I am a sophisticated artist. I, I've been around. I've seen what's going on. I know what's going on. I know about drawing lessons. And, you know, I know there's a guy at the league te teaching anatomy and so on. Uh, so no, I'm not a naive painter. But I, John Cain introduced me to, a, to painting in a certain spirit which was an innocence of spirit about the situation that he lived in. I mean, he was a guy who did not, who uh, um, would not go on strike. He didn't like strikes. And even though he got his leg chopped off in a terrible accident, you know, an industrial accident, which he sh really should have sued for and all that kind of thing, he 
put on a, uh, he got a peg leg and he learned to dance a jig with his peg leg, you know. He was just one of those up and fight em guys and he painted a sentimental painting of Andrew Carnegie's house. He went for the whole thing. When I see Pittsburgh, painted by John Kane, I see a certain view of Pittsburgh which is, in a, which is a wonderful, wonderful um, counter-attack on those paintings by um, the, the guy who did the beautiful abstractions of the Brooklyn Bridge and Stella. Stella, Stella yeah. which are highly critical of industrialization. Do you see what I mean? And for me, they gave me that amazing feeling when you get to Pittsburgh, you say, boy, these are America's biceps. Look at those mills putting out. You, know, it's, you get a kind of a tremendous buzz off that. I do. I think it's an extraordinary thing. I know I'm an environmentalist too, and I have other takes on it. That's not an, un un it's not an Un, un, undiluted take, but it's part of it. It is part of it. So you have you you definitely have an attraction to to the industrial and to the uh, the the uh, creations of engineering. Um, and a lot of your paintings, um, like we saw some of these paintings um, on the about the um, the Gowanus um, Expressway and the um, the elevated subway, um, which is nearby where, where I live. I happen to find it very beautiful, but I thought I was alone in finding it beautiful because it's, uh, it's also hideous on another level, you know, and especially to have to live with that Gowanus Expressway, um, which they keep threatening to, or promising to tear down. Um, I'm going to read a passage from your Gowanus journal where you, you come upon it for the first... I'm not going to read the sex parts, don't worry. Um, but uh, I won't embarrass you, but... Um, this is uh, at the beginning of a, a uh, Rackstraw kept a, a journal um, about uh, painting uh, uh, these paintings and also uh, painting the razor wire paintings that you that you saw toward the end. Um, and here he's talking about uh, taking the train to uh, Smith Street, the F train, which I know well. Um, so I got off at Smith Street and wandered around. Last year, I started two oil sketches near there which might be worth continuing with. So I looked at these sites, unimpressed. Possible, but not alluring. Last week I went to the Bronx to see the Urban Mythology Show, and though I have sometimes called myself a sociological rather than a landscape painter, I realized I had not been, as the curators are, interested in the sociology of the Bronx at all. Not the fortunes or misfortunes of the inhabitants, not the dereliction or the rehabilitation of the neighborhood. It was a wonderful mix of topography, engineering, transportation. It's a fantasy combination of all these elements of urbanism and a spectacular combination. River, railroad tracks, artisan shacks and shanties, bluffs, rocks, landmarks, towers, bridges, clover leaves. The subject, in a way, is the vantage point. The Washington Bridge as a lookout point, a belvedere onto countless elements that make up city life. It's the panoramic point of view, as in Whitman where the individual life counts for little, but the collective life is an extraordinary meal of endless courses, rich. So what am I doing at Smith Street? It's the two great elevated systems, the subway overhead on one hand, the highway on the other. Two types of L. I think I could get them both in one picture, could I? I think of Gerhard Richter, who said, there are no single images anymore, and I think of how annoyed I was with him but how, perhaps with his thought quietly marinating in the unconscious, I made a seven-part painting, including six different views of two objects at Chinati. And it occurred to me I would make not one panorama combining the two L's, but a pair of images with one L in each. 
I sat down and tried to draw the underside and the supporting structure of the Smith Street L with a, minute, with a minute vignette of the Gowanus Expressway off in the distance. It was an apathetic performance, unconvinced and half-hearted, and I soon got up from the very uncomfortable curb I was punishing my ass on, and I walked off. I approached McDonald's from the rear. Here was a subject, the golden arches, very dark and beautiful and austere against the light. Everything, the lampposts, the L with its tiny progress of vehicles and its tall slender piers, all was crisp, sharp, like a new photographer would make it. One of the new contingency guys. The colors are crisp too. I think of working there, but without an easel, which I don't have with me, it would be hard. I walk on, planning to try this some other day. I walk along a U-shaped walk, ending up again under the Smith Street Station, but on the other side of the Gowanus Canal. Here are interesting things, again, that supportive structure, and later on another view of it, with the new drawbridge, not quite finished. Anyway, you go on to say, um, yes, uh, there are two tenses juxtaposed. The L is funky, steel covered with concrete, to preserve the steel, and the bridge is sleek, but the water, the old tires on the banks, the weeds, it's all too known and sweet, too sentimental, the urban grunge picturesque all over. I move on, restless, slow, unexcited, but quietly curious. And it's a passage which, which raises a lot of issues, you know, the, the sort of, the, the, the interest and then the kind of rejecting, no, this has been done before, um, it's too sentimental, we don't want it to be urban grunge, we want, so it sounds like you're, you're after something that's, that, that captures the hero, heroism of, of engineering in a way, you know, um, but, 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 but isn't sentimental, um, that captures uh, the, the, the overlapping of everything, you know, the panorama. There's a lot of ideas thrown out in that. Um, so, so let's start with engineering. Why, why do these big structures interest you? Well, you know, the very early uh, representational paintings that were in those slides, there were only two or three of them, but they were all rural stuff. They yes. were all from Maine. Yes. And I was very interested in the life that people lived, li lived in Maine. Very, uh, I liked the, the, the farmers and their extreme modesty of lifestyle. And I felt that their modesty and their carefulness about materials made the landscape possible that is in Maine. It made it, un it, was, it was in a terrific shape. You could go down a stream and catch a fish and it wasn't, uh, it wouldn't make you sick, that fish. And the stream was still babbling and it was clear as a bell. And that was partly because these guys weren't greedy. They weren't ambitious. And that interested me a great deal, that style of life. However, I had to admit that I did have artistic ambitions. And I spent three months of the year in Maine and nine months in New York. And I wasn't going to give up the excitement of the urban situation. And I began to see all that kind of greener than thou stuff about, you know, by sort yeah. of the young people that moved in to have a certain hypocritical edge to it, actually, or a slightly self-righteous edge, at least. Yeah, and the I next person who moves in here is the despoiler. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. the last conserver, well, yeah. You know, I mean, yes, exactly. And I think that um, I had to acknowledge the fact, and they do too, that of course they had electricity and it actually came from a nuke plant on the coast. And you know, it's very difficult to lead a truly ethical life. 
And I also found that during the summers in Maine, I, after living in my own house, raising vegetables during the summer and so on, one summer I went, rented an apartment in Portland, Maine, and suddenly I did twice as much work because I had nothing to do around the house. I didn't look after my own place. <laughs> now you have to resolve these things in your imagery, you right. see. Your imagery has to say something about this. And it, we have to own the landscape we make. There's a lot of dumps, and I showed two dumps, a, fr a dump at Freshkills, and I showed the dump in the, in the Meadowlands in those slides. And I painted those dumps because that's where it all ends up. It's my trash and it's your trash. It's our trash. We have to own that dump. We are the civilization that's created more dumps and more trash than any other in the history of mankind. Our population's going to double by the year 2015. What are we going to do with all this garbage? Where are all those computers going to? What do you know what I mean? We have to deal with that. The 21st century stuff. is about garbage, yeah. Yeah, we have to deal with that stuff. And so my imagery addresses itself to that. It's not because I love those dumps particularly. But there is also something beautiful about those dumps. When I was painting those dumps in New Jersey, in the Meadowlands, two little boys came up to me. We're snake hunting down here, they said. We're the great snakes around here. But you know what? They said, this, dump, this picture is great. And my daddy drives a dump truck. And he's going to be up on the top of that dump in a minute. Will you put his trunk in for me? And I realized, you know, these guys are called garbage farmers that run those dumps out there. Farmers, garbage farmers. They're farming garbage, you know. Those things are called the Carney Alps. They're in the town of Carney. The Carney Alps. These people have a sense of humor about these things. Yeah. And they, 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 you know, they live it out and they have an emotional investment in these damn structures. And you realize that that's part of it too. It's part of our society. And I can't, probably must some of my junks on that dump. I can't turn my back on that and say that's no good. So do you, do you, do you have any sense that there's a difference between a landscape and a cityscape? No, I don't think there's any such difference. No, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, I think that um, the, there's a polarity between the two, but the, the dividing line is unfindable in our society, I think, just about. Yeah. So, do you think this is a kind of more of an English or an American way of looking at things? I mean, because... I just think it's a realistic way of looking at things. <laughs> I, I'm, I guess the reason why I say it is because, you know, and, and, and the, the American, um, uh, you know, like the Hudson River School, there was a tendency to idealize the landscape. Um, Whereas in, in England, they were much more conscious, and in Europe, much more conscious that, that the landscape has been worked forever. It's a worked landscape. It's a, the, the, the economy, the sense of, for want of a better term, class struggle is, is, is very apparent in, in, in the way, you know, and how cultivated it is. So they can't pretend, they can't begin to pretend that there was a, a completely untouched, you know, right, place. And, right, and, right. And, and so, so you're bringing that, that awareness, which is um, like Raymond Williams in the country and the city, mm -hmm. or or mm -hmm. Cobbett's uh, mm -hmm. World Roads, you're bringing mm -hmm. that awareness of, 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 you know that of the, the um, the land use change. It's used right. Every inch is used. Like in Italy, you see those gardens that are those. That horticulture, that's four-tier horticulture. You start out with a little plant at the bottom, and then you grow an elm tree, and then you grow the vine grows up the elm tree, and you've got four-tier four-tier gardening. And that is, you know, that, I think that's understood better. And Dr. Johnson, my friend Jim Long, who's in the audience here tonight, uh, uh, um, lent me uh, Johnson's tour of the Hebrides. Yes, and he talks book, about yeah. these islands being so inviting. And then he gets to the island, he takes the boat out to the island, he says, there's nothing there but naked nature. <laughs> 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 to me, that's nothing. <laughs> you see, that's the very opposite of Bierstadt going out to the west in order to find naked nature. Or, yes. or even Bresden, 
the French etcher who came to the United States to find virgin forests. Yeah. Uh, I think there is. I think the New World issue is, is an issue, and it has it has affected people's perceptions of nature and culture and its relationship. But you're interested in what's your interest in panorama? Why panorama? Why? I mean, you know, when you think of certain painters like. Uh, well, like Wallavo or Robert Dash, they, they're getting into the middle of it in a very myopic way, whereas you want to step back and be panoramic. What is that? Stepping back is, a, is an interesting issue. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, that there is some psychological desire to step back and get a view of the whole thing. I think that's true. And then I think there's another issue, which is context, that I don't want to show anything without its context. So if I'm painting that river in the Bronx, you know, the Harlem River in the Bronx, I want to show that George Washington's high school is on top of the ridge up there. Right. I want to show that the clover leaf comes in down here and you enter it from a street in the Bronx and so on. I, I, I keep looking to left and right because it contextualizes everything. You learn that from organic gardening immediately. You learn that all you have to do is to put a little drip of something over here and it kills your plants or whatever it is. You know, everything affects everything else. And if, if you use a little DDT, it ends up at the North Pole. So there is some idea that you, I wanted to deal, deal with holes. You look in at some this, way. and that's connected to that, and it that's keeps right. adding. That's right. And, 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 and you keep adding pieces of canvas because you keep that's seeing That's true. It. That's right. Henry James said relations never cease. <laughs> they don't. You know, you go from this, this joins to that, and it joins to that, and then it joins to that, and so on. But, uh, but if I may quote uh, Rockstraw Downs, uh, <laughs> um, you, you, you have a comment about Whitman, that, Whit that there's something very, um, that Whitman is a figure of the panoramic and also the democratic. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you go on and say um, that he, he addresses these poems to Dear Camerata, which is oddly unindividualized, impersonal, unnamed. And then you say that's the price of the panoramic view. It precludes acute and intimate focus. So, um, so in that sense, you would, do you think this is, I don't want to put you on the spot psychologically, but do you think that, that, um, that um, this reflects something in your personality that precludes uh, uh, acute and intimate focus? Um, Ask my shrink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, Adam Zagajewski says, the poet says that uh, it's not the agenda, it's not the tendency of the work, it's not the intention of the work, it's, it's, the, it's the manner of speaking. It's the tone of voice. Right. And the, the poet can't know that. We can't know ourselves like that. And I think that's true. There are all kinds of things in your work that you won't you can't you did not intend and it, 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 that's not wrong it's simply your psychic energy that's bubbling up there you know it seems like you like you definitely want the long the long view you know and uh, and a lot of your paintings have this kind of um, uh widescreen proportion you know which i think of as a cinemascope proportion you know um which is um much um much wider than they are high that's true uh, do you, wh wh why do you favor that proportion well, there are a number of reasons. In the first uh, instance, you know, I am interested in what connects to what. Yes. And I'm interested in what man has done to the landscape, so I'm not very interested in the sky. So I never paint a very high sky, or very seldom paint a high sky. And also it, you have problems painting skies sometimes. That I certainly do. And uh, I think that uh, you learn to deal. Yeah, I think you should never paint defensively. That yeah. is to say, I'm not very good at the sky, therefore I've got to go out and practice skies. I said, I don't like the sky. Screw the sky, you chop it off. <laughs> so low you skies. You cultivate your, 
you yes. cultivate your you, you talents, tilt, not you, your lack of talent. Yes, you tilt your, your limitations away from the viewer, yes. That's right. That's schoolmaster talk. Go learn to paint skies, little boy. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, that's no good. That's a sticking schoolmaster. But we do you also think that a, that a high sky is somehow more... Uh, um, an opening for sentimentality? No, 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 not at all. There are some high skies in there. When I went to paint, uh, when I went to paint some radio towers down in Texas, I yeah. painted a very high sky. That painting is square. It's as high as it is long. But there are very few that are longer than they are wide. That's true. I think in that, uh, yeah, that's very true. There are very few that are longer than wide. You know, that's Fritz true. Lang once said that. Uh, but that doesn't. That doesn't. Wait a minute now. I'm ah, quite finished here. Okay. You know, if you were to look up and paint a very tall painting, that would be a panorama too. Yes. It'd just be a panorama in the vertical dimensions. Yeah. Rob Storr made a beautiful show in the MoMA one time, and he had a Bernie. He all the pan. They were all called the long view. They were all long paintings like this. But he had a Bernie Sabat photograph that was a long column, column tall yes. column like that. That also is a long view and just as panoramic. But I do. I do have to tell you that that Fritz Lang once said that uh, widescreen was good for nothing but snakes and funerals. Uh, Tarkovsky didn't agree with that. No, did he? no. <laughs> no. I actually like widescreen. Uh, which did probably you, why, did why you like see that opinion. new print of the uh, of the Tarkovsky, the uh, Alexander uh, uh, Andrei Rublev? Andrei Rublev. Yeah, I've. It's Unbelievable. Those are the best panoramas I've seen. They were incredible. Yeah, he understood yeah, panoramas. He did. I wanted to talk a little bit about this issue of uh, illustration because that was a big bug uh, bugbear. Uh, you know, when and this certainly. Um, in the 60s, you know, uh, if you wanted to put down an artist, you said he was, he was an illustrator. Right. Uh, and so anyone who was figurative or realistic was in danger of being called uh, an illustrator, right? Yes. Uh, so, so how did you grapple with that? And what do you think about that charge anyway? I remember uh, Neil Welliver down at the University of Pennsylvania one day, and a student said to him, uh, you know, I'm worried. I'm worried if I'm just an illustrator. He said, illustrate. Right. <laughs> He said, mix your brush up with lots of wet paint and just go illustrate. <laughs> and, of course, you do that and you don't illustrate. Yes. And you don't. Illustration, I mean, the idea to get past illustration is a question of energy. It's a question of intensity and drive and a sense of the whole, and then you're not an illustrator. That's all. But nowadays, there's a lot of what I would call partial art. Look at those beautiful drawings by Toba Kodori out at the MoMA right now. Are they illustrations? Well, you would have said so 30 years ago. She takes a tiny detail of a room and puts it in the middle of a 14-foot square, uh, you know, 14 by 14-foot piece of paper, and you have this tiny thing, and it activates the whole thing, man. You, you feel this incredible intensity, and you don't object to illustration anymore. Those are taste things, and they change. Yeah, so you think they have changed? Enough. Totally changed. Totally changed, yeah. And what about narrative? I mean, you, you, do, you, do you consider yourself a storyteller? Definitely. I think I tell a lot of stories about the, uh, about the site. Yes, I do. Uh, when I show slides of my work, I usually, all I do is tell stories about the, the site. And I did that once at Dartmouth, and the guy got up in the audience and said, I'm sick of your stories. Can't you say something about your art? <laughs> but I said, my art comes from an interest in those stories. That's, how, that's why I've developed it. 
I I was very interested in the in the early years, the early 1970s, in the rehabilitation of the detail. I needed the detail to tell the stories. I was painting a chicken house in Maine, and there were 140 windows in that chicken house, and in every window there was a light bulb turned on in yeah. the middle of the day. That's how they keep those chickens right. to grow faster. They never turn the lights out. They never go to sleep. Those chickens. They live a miserable life. When uh, you know, I'm a vegetarian, and when my fellows at the table say, "Well," At least you eat chicken. I said, no, least of all I eat chicken because they have the lousiest life of any animal <laughs> we raise. But, you know, I was telling a story about those hen houses by putting in each light bulb. That right. was an idea. So you get to detail because you have something to say. Now, you don't, you, you don't work from photographs, right? Um, I've never worked from photographs. So, no. so it's very important for you to, to go out um, in the midday sun and, um, and uh, use your eyes... Uh, <laughs> Like a limey, you mean? <laughs> it is. I like to use my eyes. You know, I, I, uh, I was painting. I showed a slide up here of some cows around a farm pond. I made that in 1972. And I went to paint that farm pond, and I didn't know the cows would be there. And the farmer milked very late in the morning. So during the hours that I was painting there, his cows would get milked, and they'd come out of the barn, and they'd go for a dip in the pond. It was a hot week in July. And then they'd go down to the pasture to graze. And this only took about three minutes. And I wanted those cows in that pond. And I couldn't, I was not quick enough to paint them. So I went to town, and I bought a Polaroid camera. And I took some snapshots of those cows coming out. And I looked at the darn things, and first of all, out of this camera came this disgusting package of white goo. And I said, this is revolting. I am never going to take another Polaroid shot. But then I looked at the shots that had been developed in there, and the cow's legs were in positions that I had never seen. And of course, we all know from Mybridge's, that famous bet between the governor of Pennsylvania and somebody, and the Mybridge photographs that were settled the bet. It was only by photography that they settled the bet as to whether horses have all four feet on the ground right. at any one moment and so on and so on. That, uh, the camera sees much faster than us. Also, the camera arranged the, 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 the site in a spatial arrangement that I don't see. Right. It was completely different from the way I perceived it. So I gave that camera away to my next door neighbor's son. And uh, I learned to draw. So, <laughs> so how, do you deal with, how do you deal with the changes? Um, you learned to draw, you just taught yourself? I mean, did, you, did anybody? I did. I did. You know what I did? I went straight over to a neighbor of mine who, who had cows. And I said, got any cows in your barn chained up so they can't move? He said, yeah. So I went in the barn and drew these cows which were chained up so they couldn't move until I got pretty good at cows. Jim Long will confirm that because he was there that summer. He saw this going on. <laughs> and I have the drawings. They, at first, they were stiff as hell, and they had measurements and everything. You know, is this as wide as is this cow taller than is this wide? What's, you know, and all that stuff. It was difficult, but uh, eventually I got it. So how do you how do you deal with uh, when you're painting a landscape day after day when the landscape changes? Since you're so interested in change in land, you suppose suppose you come back and. Not only the cows aren't there, but the farm isn't there or something, you know. Yeah, well, that does happen. And it, it can be a very anxiety-producing uh, existence, in a way. That, that is a, it's a problem. I'm painting, uh, working right now, and there's a lot of grass in the painting I'm doing right now. And I started the painting last year, last, uh, in late summer and into fall, when there was a drought. The grass is all yellow. This year, we've had fantastic rain since Labor Day, an immense amount of rain. The reservoirs are all full, having been down by 19 inches. That grass is all green this year. Uh, you have problems, and that, those problems keep you on your toes. They're excellent problems. 
Yeah, you... <laughs> I couldn't be a still life painter because, uh, you know, it would just sit there for me, too obedient. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I want something to get up and say, hey, Dan, screw you. I'm going to give you a hard time. And I am up to the challenge and I want to do it, you know? Yeah, you mentioned <laughs> how, how there was a pile of scrap metal that you was trying to paint and then uh, it was sent off to the Japanese and suddenly there was no pile of scrap metal or something That's right. like that. That's right. So That's what? Right. So what did you do with those smudges in the painting? I mean, you know, uh, the, the scrap metal pile disappeared. The top of the pile disappeared. I saw that metal over a fence, that pile over a fence, and I concentrated on the fence. And I made a tour de force painting of a fence through which you could see just a little bit of the operation of that scrap metal going inside, because the fence was perforated, so the wind would go through it, you know, and you could just get a vague thing. So I thought, now my now that, those Japanese guys who bought that scrap metal did me a big favor because I painted something I never would have dreamed of painting if, I, if they hadn't taken that pile away. So you keep adjusting, I mean it's... Uh, yes, you do, you it's, do. It, it seems very important, you know, in, 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 in knowing you and, and, and reading the things you say that, that um, you want to, you don't want to conceptualize beforehand, you want, you want to be open to accent, and this is perhaps the, the jazz lover in you, but you want to keep improvising in a way. Um, because on the one hand, you're, you are extremely intellectual. On the other hand, you don't want to have thought out a painting too much mm. before you start painting it. That's right. That's true. Um, you don't, it's not a contradiction. It's just who you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a contradiction. I think Fairfield Porter was the same way. He was a terrific intellectual, much more than I was. Studied with Whitehead and all that kind of thing. Kept reading philosophy to the end of his life. And um, I think that he thought out his position, but didn't think at the easel. Right. He thought in advance, do you see what I mean? And said, my position is not to think at the easel, but to be spontaneous, to go with the shapes, to, you know, to try, to try to identify with them in an instinctual way. And I think that's part of his painting. I think there was a deliberate ruling out. You know, you could say Poussin is a very intellectual constructor of paintings. Right. Fairfield's paintings are not constructed like Poussin. They're happenings, you know, they, I think. They're sort of happening paintings. And, and you want your paintings to be that way too, or no? I'm a good deal more thought out in my compositions than Fairfield is. No, I go through a long phase of preparation. I make many drawings at the site. And when I've got the drawing that I think is the right one, then I make an oil sketch. And I work on the oil sketch for uh, many days too. Sometimes eight or ten days I work on that sketch until I feel I've got all the objects in the right place, you know, and I've got the scale. Uh, the scale is the most important thing of all. And then I determine the, the dimensions of the, the big painting from that oil sketch. So there's a much more conscious preparation, I would say, than in Fairfield. Fairfield told me, I don't know if this is really true, but he told me that he never went back to a site because the weather would never be the same. The light would never be the same. My mm. light is much more generalized than Fairfield's. Much more. And it has to be because I'm interested in all those little details and take me months and months to paint them in. But does that mean that you are... Uh, you if, you, if you're painting a painting that's in, in a sunny conditions, that you basically keep going back when it's sunny? or Mostly, yes. In the early stages, I can use a lot of, lot of different light conditions because you're organizing the masses, let's say. Right. You want to know where that power plant sits. You shift it a little to the left, a little to the right. It doesn't matter whether it's sunny or gray. But as the painting comes further on and you're working on the light and how, what light you really want in the painting, then the, the, the number of hours that I can work outside gets shorter and shorter and the number of days I can work on gets fewer and fewer because the light then has to be very specific. I, I, I was reading a, one account where you said that 
you were working on two paintings and you were clever enough to have one under rainy conditions and one under sunny conditions so no matter what happened you could go to work you know? right right that's right yeah that's a standard thing yeah mm -hmm. and also in that Gowanus painting I worked on different sides of the expressway so I was always in the shade in the morning I was on the shady side in the afternoon I went to the other side and uh -huh. I was in the shade again because that was a summertime painting and hot as hell under there well um, I'd like to open the uh, discussion up to some questions um, and comments uh, if there are any in the audience um, so um, because I can just keep going on and on, but I've gotten a signal. Yes. I should paraphrase because people in the back are not going to be able to hear the question. So the question was very complicated, but uh, it had to do with uh, with uh, um, Rackstraw was quoting uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins' use of the term inscape, and had to do with um, with uh, the spiritual and with uh, uh, putting a man in front of cosmic forces of nature. Do you want to say anything? Well, I th I'm not sure that that's how Hopkins used the word inscape. I I'm not sure I agree with you about that. Hopkins, to me, inscape in Hopkins is spiritual energy, but it's revealed in a specific shape or form. Yeah, and I think that's what Fairfield Porter was trying to do when he made these elbows that stick out too much that, that, uh, that uh, Philip was talking about. Yeah? Do. Come up here and take the mic. I'm going to have to cut you off because uh, we, we're going to have a. Well, it's, I like this idea of the suburban Emerson, but it, um, it, my head is spinning. Uh, it's an interesting theory. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any other questions? Uh, the lady in the front, yes. That's a very... How uh, long do you spend you on know. each painting, Rackstraw? Yeah, well, that's months. 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 Um, my production ends up being something like uh, four or five full-size paintings a year, and then a lot of oil sketches and a lot of drawings to go with them. 
So oh. it was somewhere around two or three months, usually on a big painting, full-size painting. Yeah. Uh. Not always those. Not always done consecutively, though. It could be, you know, because you only go 15 days in the month because the weather was wrong for it. You do it. Some of that, those three months are done this season, and some are done next season. Yes. You think they do look like that, or that I want them to look like that? <laughs> I think it would be fabulous if they did, yeah. But you can't hide it, you know. You can't hide the fact that it's a long-term painting. I think that anyone's going to get that. And yeah. if you look at one of the oil sketches that take, took uh, two or three days and then look at it next to a, uh, a, a finished painting, I think you'd see immediately that there's a huge difference. And you would be able to tell. You'd be able to tell. You just heard Rackstraw Downs being interviewed by Philip Lopate, part of the Bomb Live Artist and Curator series that took place at the New Museum in New York City in the fall of 2002. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.